Good morning. He is risen. I want to begin. Um, if I start thanking people, there's going to be a million people I'm going to leave out. But there's just a couple of people I really wanted to point out. Um, one, you don't even can't even see him, but Matt Collinson is on the sound. Matt, Matt literally has spent three days this week between Good Friday and preparing this space. He spent almost three entire days um, preparing for these services, and so we couldn't be here without him. The other person is Jessica Breslin, our chief of staff, has just... I, I don't think she slept. Uh, and then uh, Leah Craiglow uh, just prepared the space, made it beautiful with the flowers, but also put on our amazing Good Friday service and has just gone way over and above. So thank you, Leah. And thanks to Pastor Angela and her team that pulled this morning off and Pastor Ramon, who's uh, led amazing worship service. And, and once we come back here, um, Pastor Ramon will be the parish pastor here um, in this neighborhood. So anyway, we're excited. Um, Easter is my absolute favorite Sunday of the year. That is why I've been up since 3 a.m. and am running on adrenaline and caffeine. If I speed through my sermon, it is because I'm a bit hepped up. But it's also because there's electricity in the room and you all look so good. I mean, some of you, I had no idea that you could clean up like this. The flowers are blooming and there is just, there is an electricity in the air on Easter Sunday. We feel resurrection in our bones, not just in our head. But I also have a couple confessions to make. Um, I say that, um, that preaching is cheaper than therapy, so I just like, you're my, you're my, uh, my therapist. Um, anyway, my confessions are this. Uh, the one is, the thing I'm mo I told someone the other day, I said I'm really nervous about Easter. They're like, oh, I know, the sermon to prepare, or, and you know, like pulling the service off. So I was like, no, none of that makes me nervous. That We do that every week. I don't know what to wear. I mean, no joke. Like, Three, I went to my wife with three separate outfits. I'd walk in the room, and she's like, no, seriously, go back and change. Pick something else out. That, that happened. Um, the other reason, um, the, other, the other issue with Easter is it's a hard Sunday to preach because, I mean, there's one topic you really should talk about. And a, a friend of mine, um, he has a seven-year-old, um, and he was... Uh, in kids' church, and one Sunday he picked him up after kids' church at, during the Advent season, and he said, what'd you learn today? And his son sighed, and he's like, oh, dad, the same old, same old, Mary, Joseph, and baby Jesus, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and so I'm always afraid that when you leave, people say, you know, what did you learn in Easter Sunday? Oh, you know, the same old, same old, Jesus is risen again, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> And so my prayer is always that God would have, it took Robert a second to get there. <laughs> so my prayer is that God would always have a fresh word for us. And let's be honest, for some of you, this is the one shot I have all year, so I better make it good. <laughs> but here's the other confession. And this one, maybe I'm going a bit too far, but I get uncomfortable during the Easter season with all of the talk about the cross. Now, that's an odd confession for a pastor. And the problem is, is that we often turn the cross 
into the ultimate end of our faith, and we end up idolizing it. We act as if it is some sort of magic tree. The idea goes something like this, that Jesus died a tragic death on the cross as a sacrifice, and through his death, we now have new life, and we're forgiven, and we can go into heaven. And individually, none of that is wrong, but I think if that's the way we read the story, it misses the ultimate point of the cross and resurrection. N.T. Wright, one of my favorite scholars, tells this great example. Um, he said, you know, there's like the connect the dots as a kid. It's the only way I could draw. You know, you go from this line, this dot to this dot and this dot. And if you go the right way, you have a beautiful picture. But if you're me and you have an ADD rattled brain, um, it, it ends up just being a jumble because you can still connect all the dots and not actually draw the picture. And I think sometimes we do that with the cross and resurrection, that, that we end up connecting the dots in the wrong way, and the picture that we end up with was never the biblical vision of cross and resurrection. Here's what you need to remember. The cross is simply the way that, Roman dealt, that Rome dealt with troublemakers, people who threatened the status quo. The cross was a means of humiliation. It was a way that Rome was able to say to everyone watching, if you dare to cross the Roman powers and the Roman authorities, this is your end. Had Jesus lived today, we would have found another way to crucify or to execute him. Jesus lived and preached an alternative kingdom that freaked out both the religious leaders and the Roman authorities, and so they killed him on a cross. And when they killed Jesus, that was the end. No one was going on and on about how beautiful the cross was and about their forgiveness of their sins. No, instead they ran, they scattered. They were afraid. Because it turns out that then, as now, dead people stay dead. Nobody, nobody expected Jesus to rise again. And while the cross is central to our theology, if we stop at the cross, we miss the defining event of the Christian faith. For Christians, the resurrection is our defining event. See, on the cross, Jesus enters into God-forsakenness. He enters into the darkest margins of our world. He takes the sin and brokenness of humanity upon himself. Said another way, the wages of sin is death. The ultimate end of human action is brokenness and death, but you don't need me to tell you that. You just need to watch the news or read the paper. And Jesus, through his life and ministry, confronts the powers of darkness in our world head on, the powers of violence, the powers that split people or that pit people against one another. And when Jesus died the horrible death of crucifixion at the hands of the Roman army, when he died at the hands of the Roman army, no one thought that Jesus was a hero. His movement was over. Nothing had changed. This was the sort of thing that Rome did better than anyone else. Caesar was on his throne. Death, as usual, had the last words. Jesus' followers scattered. But then something happened. Something happened. An event happened that caused a scared group of Jesus' followers to emerge from hiding and boldly confront the very people who had killed Jesus with the message of, of, the, of the power of the cross and Jesus' resurrection. And so the question I want to ask this morning is this. What message of hope does this story, does this event have for us today? 
Does the cross and resurrection continue to speak, or was it simply a one-and-done event some long time ago that continues to provide forgiveness today but little else? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 20. John's gospel gives vivid details of the day they discovered that Jesus was raised from the dead. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter, this, this is actually one of my favorite parts, and I've told you this before, this is one of my favorite parts of the Bible, because a lot of scholars think that um, the other disciple that we're going to mention here um, is actually the the guy who wrote this gospel, John. Um, And so Peter and the other disciple, potentially John, start for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple, the guy writing the book, mentions that he outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And I can imagine... And I can, imagine that, I can imagine that they are someday, like 20 years after this gospel is written, sitting, or sitting around a campfire, and Peter's like, dude, why did you include that? He's like, if you had written your own gospel, you could have told the story how you wanted. <laughs> and he bent over, and he looked in and, saw the, looked in and saw the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. Just a side note, if, if there's nothing else that you gain from uh, being at the table, I hope you begin to to connect with the humanity of the text. Right? Listen to this. He bent over. This is, this is the author talking. He bent over, and he looked at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. He couldn't bring himself to go into the tomb. He wasn't foolish enough to go in where a dead guy was. But then Simon Peter comes along, and if you know anything about Simon Peter, he, he acts first and thinks later. It says, then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He's like, what? what? This, you said there's no one in here? I'm going to go in, right? John is a little slower, and he's, he's like, wait, there might be a dead guy. And at the very least, there seems to be a light radiating from the corner of the tomb, maybe an angel. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linens. Finally, like, I love, like, Finally, like he, he hangs out outside for a while. These, these are like normal people like you and I. They did not have great faith. They too were scared of dead people in gravestones, right? Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, in case I forgot to mention, I'm run faster, <laughs> who had reached the tomb first also went inside. And then he saw and he believed. And then this is parentheses is actually in the text. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. They did not expect Easter Sunday. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. As Jesus' followers looked back on that day, they came up with the shocking and scandalous and nonsensical claim that his death and resurrection had launched a revolution. They believed that with this event, God had suddenly and dramatically put into motion His plan to rescue the world. They saw it as the day the revolution began. The first Christians knew that the cross and Easter were about more than simply the forgiveness of sins. It was about new life. 
Resurrection was not about a one-and-done event, but it opened up a new way of living and invited us in. Jesus' death and resurrection changed everything. John 20 continues on. Um, You really should read it. It's a phenomenal chapter. John 20 continues on. Jesus appears to a few other people. There's this incredibly powerful moment where he appears to uh, Mary Magdalene. I think it's one of the most um, emotional moments in all of the Gospels. And Jesus appears to a few other people. And then John's Gospel, most scholars think that John's Gospel actually ends at chapter 20. And then he just had more to say. So like at the end, tax on another chapter because he just couldn't be quiet. But, but it, it, it seems liter, like the lit, when they do a literary analysis that it was meant to stop at John 20, 31. And it ends this way. But these words are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. These words that have come before about the resurrection and about Jesus' life, they've written that you may believe that Jesus is Messiah, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, that by believing you may have life in his name. The cross and resurrection were not simply about a one-time event, but it was an ongoing event. Now, John's gospel, and this is like going to matter to two of you, um, and the rest of you can tweet about how much fun you're having. Um, But John's gospel is dripping with two themes, new life and new creation. New life and new creation. Um, Quickly, uh, we see new life in John chapter 3. This is the moment that Nicodemus comes to him late at night, and they have this whole conversation about being born again. Jesus says this, look, very truly, I tell you that no one can see the kingdom of God without experiencing new birth, new life. John 10.10, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. John 11, this is the moment right after Lazarus is raised from the dead. Jesus is not the first resurrection. After Lazarus is raised from the dead, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live. Jesus seems to be saying, you don't get it. The resurrection is not simply about being raised from the dead. I am the resurrection and the life. But then the other thing, and this is, I think this is super cool, um, the new creation John, John, these authors, when they're writing these Gospels, are often doing something a lot deeper than we even catch when we first kind of read. And John, in particular, is, is pointing to Genesis. Right? In those days, if you were a Jewish scholar, you would memorize the entire New Testament. And so you pick up in these allusions, or uh, yeah, you pick up in these, the allusions that he makes, uh, the, where he points back to the previous to previous writings a bit quicker than we would today. But for a good Jew of that day, everything symbolized something. And John's gospel is giving a wink to Genesis from its first words. Remember how Genesis began, in the beginning God created. How does John's gospel begin? In the beginning was the word. Then, and then, and then Jesus' final words in, the, in John's gospel before he dies or it is finished, which mirrors Genesis 2-1, where when God finishes with creation, when he finishes making everything amazing, it says it is finished, it is complete. John also emphasizes more than once that Jesus was raised again on the first day of the week. That seems like an odd detail for John to keep reiterating. Jesus is raised on the first day of the week. Okay, we get it. But then check this out. At the time... 
The number seven was a symbol of creation. And in John's gospel, in John's gospel, there are seven miracles, seven signs that, that the healing that they had been longing for had come. Right? It was, there were these seven signs of God's kingdom, changing the water into wine, the healing of the royal's official son in Capernaum, the healing of the paralytic at Bethesda, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus walking on water, and Jesus healing the blind at birth, and then the raising of Lazarus. And then what is the eighth sign that God's kingdom has entered the present? That happens on the first day of the week? It's the resurrection. John is, John is trying to say, look, the old, the first seven, the first seven days of creation, that what was has come to an end. Jesus says on the cross, it is finished, and something new has emerged into our very world. There is a new creation. In the cross and the resurrection, God's new creation has begun, and we are invited to be a part of it. God's kingdom has broken into the present, and we are invited to participate. The early Christians believed that God was going to do for the whole cosmos what he had done for Jesus. Easter is not about an escape from this life, but it is a confirmation of the goodness of God's creation. God was about the restoration and the resurrection and the redemption of all creation. There's a story that Jesus tells in John's gospel uh, about Nicodemus, or the story that John tells about Jesus. Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus, John chapter 3, he comes to Jesus late at night and says, hey, what must I do to have eternal life? What must I do to have this abundant new life that you're talking about? This, what Jesus says, actually has become a buzzword he says, you must be born again. And half the people in the room are like, yes, that is the only way we know if you're a true follower of Jesus. If when I ask, are you born again, you say yes. And the other half of the room is saying, I still have baggage from people trying to ask me whether I was born again. It became, it's kind of become this buzzword, are you born again? But what I think Jesus is trying to say when he uses the analogy of birth, he's talking about new life. You must be born again. When, when I held Eloise in my arms for the first moment, be the thing that struck me besides the fact that she is way cuter than any other baby out there, I am sorry, <laughs> the other thing that struck me is she had no regrets or shame or guilt or past. It was a blank slate. All she had was her future. It was all that could be and not what was. That's what new birth is about, right? There is no past. There is no thing to be over. It is simply about what could be, not what was. This is what new creation, this is what new birth is all about. The old is dead. The new has come. Paul says it this way in Colossians 3.8. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are from the new creation. Put to death things of the old creation. Close yourself with the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. In that renewal, there is no longer Jew nor Greek, slave or free, but Christ is all in all. Peter says it this way, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The message of the New Testament is clear that the resurrected God that the God who, that the resurrected God is resurrecting us, 
is resurrecting you is still about bringing new life and resurrection and new creation. The Easter message is that God's new creation of hope and new possibility have broken into today. New life is possible today. There is new life possible in your relationships and in your family and in your career and in your spiritual journey. All these things that to you, I don't know what it is. I mean, if we sat down and had coffee, you might tell me that thing in your life that feels dead, that's falling apart, the dream that you just, that was everything to you and now it is dead. I don't know what those things are, but whatever, where there is death, God offers new life. In fact, the Gospels say, look, if you are going to ever experience the new life of Christ, you've got to die to these old things. Quit dragging them around. You are a new creature. Creature, The old is dead. You are resurrected into new life. The good news of Easter, listen, the good news of Easter is not simply about being forgiven of your sins, though it is. But it says that now you are free to participate in that same forgiveness. You have been forgiven, and now you are free to forgive. Resurrection is ongoing. New life is being brought from the ashes. The resurrected God is still resurrecting. Death and resurrection are not simply about our salvation, right? We often privatize and individualize the Easter story. It is all about us, which it is, right? God is saving and redeeming all of us, but it is bigger and deeper than us. God is saving and redeeming all of creation. And those of us who are Jesus followers are invited to be a part of that redemption. The resurrection is not a one-time event, but a continual event that we are called to participate in. We are called to practice resurrection to live into God's new thing, the new birth that is beginning here and now. The message that I want to leave you with today is that we are resurrection people. It is the defining event of the Christian faith that we are the people of the resurrection and that we have died to the old and that, in fact, the way that Paul says it is we are baptized into death. That's why we always approach Easter Sunday through the death of Good Friday. We are baptized into the death of the old, and we then are baptized into Christ's new life. So as we follow the way of Jesus, as we sacrifice our own wants and desires, we practice resurrection. So here's what I want to leave you with this morning. When you laugh and sing and relish life, you're practicing resurrection. When you forgive someone, you are practicing resurrection. When you accept God's grace and offer that same grace to someone else, you are practicing resurrection. When you bring peace to conflict, you are practicing resurrection. When you welcome guests and aliens with graciousness, you are practicing resurrection. When you feed the hungry and stand for the oppressed, you are practicing resurrection. When you love God and love your neighbor, your new life is a sign of the resurrection. You are a sign of God's new life as you practice resurrection. And so I want to leave you with the words of my favorite poet, a guy by the name of Wendell Berry. Wendell Berry says this, So friends, every day do something that won't compute. Love the Lord, love the world. 
Work for nothing. Take all that you have and be poor. Love someone who does not deserve it. Give your approval to all you cannot understand. Praise ignorance. For what man has not encountered, he is not destroyed. Ask the questions that have no answer. Expect the end of the world and laugh. Laughter is immeasurable. Be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. That one stuck with me. Be joyful, though you've considered all the facts. Go with, the, go with your love to the fields. Lie easy in the shade. Practice resurrection. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would help us to realize that the calling of, on our life as followers of Jesus is not simply to see ourselves as people who are simply forgiven, but that we are people who have been forgiven and now we can live into that forgiveness. I pray that as a community, that we be a community that practices resurrection through our lives, that we become a sign of your new creation, of your new world, of, of new life, and the places we live, and the places we work, and the neighborhoods that we hang out in. May people know that you are moving and active in the world because of the way that we live. May we be a resurrection people. Amen.